Here's a statistic that might blow you away. Typically, after I buy a company, within 12 months, it's growing at a 25 plus percent organic growth rate because I'm very mindful about what I'm buying, why I'm buying it, and how I'm going to integrate it to maximize the potential. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Adam Coffey. Adam started his CEO journey working for Jack Welsh at GE when GE was the biggest business in the world. He's got a new book coming out, Empire Builder, which is a playbook on how to build a billion-dollar business. He's got two other books he's written, The Private Equity Playbook and The Exit Strategy Playbook, both of which are very good. Enjoyed reading both of those. He spent 21 years as a CEO, and over that time, he built three U.S. services businesses. Changed hands a number of times, so those three businesses had nine private equity sponsors. The exits he managed to do, 58 acquisitions along the way, and also fixed organic growth. So we talk about the difference between buy and build and organic growth. Often I find businesses that say they're going to do buy and build aren't able to do organic strategy. So we talk about how he did that in some of the businesses he'd done. So 58 acquisitions. On those three exits, he managed to achieve five times multiple on vested capital. And those exits were worth $9 billion in total. So fabulous track record. We also talk about some culture, how to avoid buying the wrong business, how he does some due diligence thinking about CEOs, the difference between trapping a CEO and letting them run their company post-acquisition. Talks about why that's different. It depends really on the business model. So we had a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. Could have talked to him all day. I'm sure you'll love it. Hi there. My name is Adam Coffey. I am the uh, founder and managing partner of the CEO Advisory Guru. Over the course of my career, I've been a CEO. I'm a veteran in the United States Army. Military taught me something about discipline, teamwork, leadership. I have an engineering background. Engineering made me a meticulous planner. I spent 10 years at General Electric during the Jack Welsh era, the Camelot era of GE, world's largest company. Tech doesn't exist yet. Number one on the Fortune 500 list, company is 100 years old and it's it's so large and growing so fast it's doubling in size about every 3 years and magical time to learn how to run a business and then fourth i spent 21 years as a ceo of three different national companies for nine different private equity sponsors i have billions of dollars in exits i completed 58 acquisitions and i got bored i got bored with running one company i wanted to help multiple entrepreneurs at a time. So I left the CEO seat 
And uh, I've resisted for two years now, every phone call that's come in, hey, Adam, come back to being a CEO or looking at a, I need a CEO for this company. I, I've resisted. I work more hours today than I did when I was a CEO, but I'm having fun. I, I, I've reinvigorated my career. I'm helping hundreds of, of entrepreneurs you know, at a time now, instead of just running one company. And it's been real, uh, a real rewarding exercise. Uh, I, I also teach at the university level, not just seminars, but then in the executive MBA program of, of some top business schools. I've written two number one best-selling books, The Private Equity Playbook, and then next to it, you can't see off camera, The Exit Strategy Playbook. And my, my latest book comes out October 24th. It's called Empire Builder. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to the release of, of that one, just gearing up for my, my book tour. Um, and that's me. That's me in a nutshell, Dominic. That's brilliant. Adam, how do you see the private equity market at the moment? Tech stock, is it mainly tech, tech businesses that you are involved in now or is it broader than that? Is it anything? I'm broad. Um, you know, if, if I were to sum up my CEO career, you know, in a few words, I'd say guys, trucks, broken stuff. Guys, trucks, building things. Guys, trucks, servicing things, many different industries. But today I'm thought broadly of as a services guy, regardless of industry. I've worked in a number of different industries. And, and now, you know, I'm on the board of several companies. Every company I work with, it seems, is not in a, an industry that I had direct experience at. My skill set, I think, is is more generic and applicable to all. I'm a CEO coach, a CEO mentor, a growth coach, a growth mentor, helping people with strategic planning, uh, tactical execution. They're experts in their field. I'm broadly speaking an expert in getting companies to grow at 30 plus percent and hold it and to build billion dollar businesses you know, over, over an extended period of time, multiple hold periods. Uh, different private equity firms coming and going. So the things that I do are kind of generically applicable to many different kinds of companies and industries. One of the things you said in your introduction there was that being an engineer taught you to be, be meticulous, which isn't something that I would say about most of the CEOs or founders that I have met. Most of them are visionary and meticulous is something that they're not. So does that strike you as different when you meet other CEOs or do you think you're different to them or? Well, I mean, you're applying a, a, a singular brush to a very broad set of canvases. I think there's different kinds of CEOs. I, I think clearly to be successful as an entrepreneur or a CEO, even if it's a, a big public company, you have to be able to articulate a vision and create some kind of a shared aspiration that people will stretch and work hard to, to achieve. So you have to be a motivator. You have to do those things. In my case, though, military taught me discipline, teamwork, leadership. Engineering and being a pilot taught me to be meticulous about not just planning, but as a pilot, be meticulous about the exit, be meticulous about the destination. You know, I don't take off in a plane without knowing where I'm going. I mean, I have to have a destination in mind. And I think that has been helpful from a business perspective as well. So I think there are different kinds of people. I've always been, I've thought of myself more as a rah-rah guy. I'm a motivator. I'm an articulate speaker. I can describe, you know, a vision for a future that people can, can aspire to want to achieve. And so I think of myself mostly as a cheerleader. I'm not the smartest guy in any room. You know, if I am, I'm in the wrong room. You know, I hire talent 
that can help me execute tactically. I'm more strategic and visionary, um, but I'm a meticulous planner. Maybe you've got then there's a, in terms of this 30% sustained 30% growth, you know, you've probably got a playbook. And when you're sitting there at the, at the board meeting, you're thinking, what plays are they running? What are they not running? What do you have a sort of top three, top 10? What, I do. And I talk about all of them. I've written books about them. But generally thinking, when I think about strategic planning in today's world, the methodology that I espouse is called talent to value. Uh, It was created by a guy named Sandy Og. Sandy is the uh, former CHRO at Unilever. He then became an operating partner at Blackstone, the world's largest PE firm. And he taught them at a time when PE was exploding and returns were harder to find how to take strategic planning to another level and translate that to the people within your organization who are going to make value happen and creating a framework around that. So we have typical levers for growth. It includes you know, organic growth, which would include things like price and volume and making strategic pivots to create broader addressable markets, to avoid red ocean, get to blue ocean, where there's less competition and ability to sell value at a higher price. And then there's margin improvement. We've got revenue. Can we service it more effectively or efficiently? For me, that includes investments in technology in order to take what I call low value work that employees are doing and automate it or outsource it so that they can focus their time and energy on high value work, which directly translates to increases in revenue or customer satisfaction. And then I think about mergers and acquisition. M&A has been a central thesis to every company that I've built. My last empire, I bought 23 companies, put them together. Empire before that, I bought 34 companies and put them together across multiple hold periods. And so if I look at the three companies that I built, All three of them had been in business for 40 years before I got there. That's a long time. And all of them were growing at kind of low to mid single digit rates. And my job was to bend the growth curve, get them to grow at 30 plus percent compound annual growth rate and hold it. And so there was a balance between organic growth, improving margins, and then inorganic growth and doing M&A or a buy-in build in order to create that 30 plus percent compound annual growth rate. Lots of the time I see that M&A plan, people say buy and build, and they get the buy bit right. But they, they don't actually fix that underlying, you know, they're buying, they're buying a lot of businesses, 23 businesses, all of which are growing sort of single digits organically. And, you know, if they get lucky, they get to sell it to somebody before they have to try and fix that organic growth rate problem. In those times when you built those empires, were, that, were you able to fix that underlying organic growth rate? I think, oh, absolutely. So in order to sell for maximum value, And to build what I'll call a sustainable empire, not a one-trick pony that's simply buying a bunch of companies and slapping them together, you have to solve for organic growth, margin improvement. And when you're doing buy and build, the biggest mistake I think I, I see people make is that they don't know what good looks like before they start. And they fall victim to what I call shiny penny syndrome. Everything looks good because I'm just trying to buy a bunch of stuff and and slam it together. I'm very thoughtful around the strategy of M&A and I use data science uh, to inform where we should be buying, what we should be buying. And here's a statistic that might blow you away. Typically, after I buy a company, within 12 months, it's growing at a 25 plus percent organic growth rate because I'm very mindful about what I'm buying, 
why I'm buying it and how I'm going to integrate it to maximize the potential. So I'll give you an example. So let me start with the data science. So my last empire I'm building, I'm building a, a nationwide in the United States, HVAC and refrigeration service company. It's Red Ocean to be sure. My largest customer is Walmart. When your largest customer is Walmart over here, that means your margins are low because they go to the lowest bidder, right? And so I'm in blue, I'm in Red Ocean. I make some strategic pivots and I, I say, okay, I'm a refrigeration and HVAC company. I, I have a $5 billion addressable market where I have to be the lowest bidder to win. Let's change that dynamic. And so I created multiple divisions that were ancillary to the verticals that we were servicing. I created an engineering division. I buy three companies that do engineering and energy optimization services type work. There I'm paid as a consultant not as a contractor, and I got myself upstream of the bids. And so the first time any of my customers would go outside their own four walls is to hire engineering. Well, I bought the preeminent MEPR engineering firm in the United States that does all the design work for all my customers. Now I know three years before all my competitors do how much money they're going to spend, where they're going to spend it, what they're going to build. And if I designed it, I've got two to three years to take off the table the ability to build it. And if I've built it, I've got a leg up to service it. If I've got a leg up to service it, I get the remodel work in seven years. So I created an ecosystem. I went left on the HVAC side. I bought a bunch of companies. I put them together and I said, okay, instead of just doing grocery store refrigeration and HVAC, why don't we do data centers, blood banks, pharmaceutical storage facilities and research facilities? Uh, why don't we start focusing on telecommunications where all of a sudden the same skill sets are being paid a vast premium to what those skill sets were doing in my original core vertical? I go from a $5 billion addressable market to a $20 billion addressable market. I create a suite of products and services around my customer. I can now go back to all my existing customers. Instead of bringing one truck to your location, I can bring you four trucks and I can do your engineering work and construction and installation and service. And, and I start building an ecosystem and that gets the old business now growing at a different rate, but it doesn't stop there. So now I look at all my existing customer logos and I say, I'm a regional company. I'm growing and aspiring to be a national company. As I'm looking at acquisitions in new geography, let's take a look at all my existing customer logos and let's lay those logos out across the entire United States, find MSAs or metropolitan statistical areas, like a city like Dallas, Fort Worth or Miami. Let's find an area that has the highest concentration of my existing customer logos that I'm not servicing because I'm not in that territory. Likewise, when I'm looking at targets, let's look at the logos they're servicing and the national footprint those logos have that that customer can't serve because they're a small local customer or small regional company that I'm gonna buy. And now I have a sales effort to cross-pollinate, hey, Mr. Customer, I'm servicing 400 stores of yours. I'm going into this new region. You've got 150 stores over there. If you're not happy with your current service provider, I'm now in town. And then those customers, hey, you were dealing with this small regional company. I'm a national company. I can service you in these 30 states where this local provider could not. And so by setting up 
that kind of a cross-sell activity, additional products and services, plus using the data science of logos and where they're at and, and where the opportunities were, we were able to increase organic growth you know, from single digits mid and on companies we were buying to, again, 25 plus percent organic growth in the first 12 years following an acquisition. So there's a science to doing M&A and most people fail the test at identifying what's the strategy, how do I then maximize the potential using data you know, and, and science and creating, you know, a strategy, a true strategy, not just buy a bunch and put it together, but have a strategy for what we're doing, why we're doing it, where we're doing it, and then how we're going to integrate it post-acquisition. I think that's why people get it wrong. Oh, the joy of working in North America in that massive market that you have and all of those people in one currency, one language. Fantastic. It makes it easy. I do have to admit I was coaching a business owner and entrepreneur in Australia recently, and, and they were doing a, you know, wanting to do a buy and build. And I'm like, look, the problem in that market is you've got 27 million people and it's a small market to begin with. And you're buying stuff at three, three times, and you're selling it at five times because you don't have the same arbitrage. You come to the United States, I buy, yeah, I buy 23 companies. On average, I pay five times each. When I sold the company, I sold it for 14 times. You know, that kind of arbitrage requires large markets, heavy fragmentation. And unfortunately, you can't find that everywhere. Um, fabulous. What are, pick your brains a bit about PE. So for those people listening who are currently owned by PE, there'll be people who are nervous about being owned by PE. There'll be people who are excited about being owned by PE. How do they pick a PE firm to give them some money? If they've got a good enough plan, they're going to get offered money from more than one company. Well, l l let me start with just some tips and tricks. Number one, when your phone rings and it's a buy-side advisor or a PE firm that is calling, chances are, given there's six to 8,000 firms, depending on how you identify what a PE firm is, chances are extremely good that you're not talking to the best firm that could be your best partner and give you the most money, you know, for your business. So I would say like any industry, there are good, there are bad, there are great, and there are God awful. And so I'll just mention my books, I donate 100% of my royalties to charity. So I'm never self-serving in my books. But if you spend five hours reading the private equity playbook, um, I, I think it'll answer this question in great detail. So, you know, most of the times on the news, we hear about the negative of private equity. The news loves to tell us bad stories, you know, about how PE comes in, the evil, they break up companies, they destroy value. That's not been my experience as a CEO working with nine of them as a CEO, now working with about a dozen as, a, as an operating partner advisor, you know, kind of role. And so my, my advice to people is you have to start by getting educated. So PE today has over 5 trillion in assets under management. They have permeated every industry on the planet. You can't get through a day without encountering logos of companies that are owned by private equity. You can't even go to like Denali National Park in Alaska and go camping by yourself in 4 million acres because half your gear that you're wearing or the tent you're sleeping in all owned by private equity backed companies. So it is everywhere. And because of private equity, we've actually created a great market for entrepreneurs to sell businesses into. They're buying over 50% of the companies that are sold on the planet today. And if you include financing, you know, or strategics backed by private equity that are buying, you know, it, it's literally most likely that you're going to sell to either a PE 
firm direct and become a portfolio or a, a platform, or you're going to sell to a, a PE back strategic who is then going to going to amalgamate you like I did those 23 companies and, and put them together. So learning about the world's largest source of non-bank capital and learning about how it works, I think is germane to your future success. And I can tell you as a buyer, whenever you're in a meeting in a conference room, you're talking to a, a potential acquisition target, the tables eventually get turned and you talk about, you know, are there any questions you have for me or for my sponsor? Crickets, crickets, no questions, don't know what to ask, don't know what questions I should ask. I'm just looking for the biggest wheelbarrow full of gold that I can find. And if I get that, I'm a happy camper. But I'm not thinking about what does my future look like, you know, with a, a PE sponsor. And so I've written, you know, I wrote an article for Forbes late last year, you know, where I talked about, first of all, when's the right time to sell to private equity? And I created this thing called the rule of 130. And if an entrepreneur takes their age as a two-digit number, and then they take their percent of net worth that is tied up in this illiquid thing called their company, and they add those digits together. If it equals more than 130, chances are you have too much risk and you need to diversify your holdings. You don't have to sell your company and walk out the back door. You can sell your company and keep running it. You can become a rollover investor. You can get a second bite of the apple. In my case, my personal record is selling the same company five times in 13 years, four months, a few days, and a couple hours. And I'll, I'll tell you that too many entrepreneurs, I, there's that arrogance of success. Hey, if I'm not the controlling shareholder, I don't want to have anything to do with you know this company. I don't want to be an investor in it. And I think, boy, you know, it's like the world's most sophisticated asset class that on average doubles, you know, the S&P 500 or the MSCI World Index. You know, if you could ride their coattails and turn some of your pot of gold, you know, your wheelbarrow full of gold, if you rolled over, you know, 25, 30% and then got a second bite of the apple, your second bite could be bigger than the first. Talk about wealth creation. And, and so, you know, as I've worked with PE, and been a rollover investor in the companies that I've been building and then putting my own capital to work alongside, you can create massive wealth by riding their coattails. And, and so I see PE as a tool. They see me as a tool. I've got limited partners that need, I gotta make massive amounts of capital. I need a CEO, I need a leadership team, I need a vehicle that can create that wealth. Adam, you're my tool. And I look at them and I think you're my tool for me to generate wealth for my family, you know, and future generations. And hey, I care about employees. I want to build a cool culture. And I, I, for decades, I've always espoused that, that profit and culture are not mutually exclusive. You can build a great company with a great culture that's a great place for people to work and you can make shareholders money. And I was preaching that 20 years ago before it became what I would say modern popular in today's world. If you don't take care of employees, you can't find employees. You can't, people, nobody wants to work anymore. Everybody wants free stuff from the government. So it's hard enough to get an employee. You have to build a company that, that cares, that, that takes care of people. That's a, a great environment to work. And that's what I've always believed and have done. I started my career at the bottom of the run, you know, as a private in the United States army, I looked up and I saw bubble gum on the bottom of somebody else's shoe. I was so low, that's how low my career started. And I held every job 
on an organization chart a person can hold in a services type company, you know, you know, from from truck driver to CEO, you know, and everywhere in between. And I learned that people add value um, and that I need to embrace and nurture people. And if I can build a great culture, I, you know, revenue takes care of itself. Build a great culture, get an engaged workforce, they take care of customers. Customers give you more stuff and revenue rains from the skies. That's my why did you join the army? Well, you know, that's a probably a good question. Let's see. I grew up in the 1960s in Detroit. And everywhere up and down on my street were World War II veterans or Korea War veterans. And you're watching these World War II movies. I'm playing with my G.I. Joes as a kid. You know, there's only five channels on TV. Internet doesn't exist. Video games don't exist. So I'm a jock. I play every sport there is. Every kid in the neighborhood every day in the summer walks outside and is playing whatever sport is in season, you know, at the time. And so... You know, uh, Ronald Reagan inspired me, and uh, I'd say that, you know, I I was proud to be an American, was proud to be, you know, the son of a Navy officer, and just felt like serving. I wanted to serve. I wasn't ready to go to college. You know, I wanted wanted to go, you know, serve my country, and I wanted to be, you know, I was born on the 4th of July. You can't be any more patriotic than me, so... You know, as a result of all of that, it was kind of just preordained from the time I was a kid that I was going to graduate high school and go in the service. And for me, that was I was pursuing technical education. Um, I was a, a smart kid and the military's technical training and the things that I learned in the military set me up for an engineering career. So just say I took an alternate path, but it fit the persona of who I was. And so I, I accomplished a lot and I tell people, if I wasn't in the service as a kid, decades ago now, I, I never make it to CEO because it was the discipline and the teamwork and leadership that created the foundation of my business you know, career that came. And you, look, you bought tons of businesses. So you must have bought businesses where they had shitty cultures when you bought them. What's in Adam's playbook for turning that around? Yeah, boy, I, I tell you, I, I talk about it here and in seminars and in other books that I've written. I think the key to buying a business is to avoid buying bad businesses. <laughs> Sidestep that problem completely. Completely. So let, let me give it to you in a statistical sense. If I think about American baseball, the best, highest batting average ever in the history of baseball was Ty Cobb. And he had a 400 plus batting average. Actually, I think his career average was like 350, something like that. But that means that six times for every 10 times he went up to bat, he made an out. You know, if you're doing M&A, you got to bat 900 plus. You can afford maybe one bad deal in 20, but you don't survive long. You know, so I'll give you an example. So the, the 23 companies I bought the last time, I'd say there was one dog with fleas. So there was one bad acquisition shouldn't have been made. That one acquisition represented less than 5% of my revenue and it created 80% of my headaches for about a three-year period. Uh, and so my teaching to people is know what good looks like, be very disciplined in your approach. And if you look at my diligence you know, items and my filters and how you do this culture, you're going to see culture right at the top of it. 
where I talk about, you know, cultural fit is important. So if I buy a business, so like, let me use some filters from my last company. I'm looking for a certain size, 10 to 30 million in revenue, minimum 10% EBITDA margin would prefer, you know, 12 to 15. I'm looking for an entrepreneur who's going to roll over 20 to 30% of the purchase price, not because I needed their capital, but because I needed their relationships with their customer base to stay intact. And the way I could guarantee that was by making them a rollover investor who had significant capital at risk so that they would remain an active part of my empire that I was building. And in there was culture. You know, if there's not a cultural fit, even if you're a great company and you meet all my filters, walk away, run away. These aren't the droids you're looking for. It's like, get out of here. How do you assess that culture then from the outside? Do you go and talk to the receptionist and that's enough or... In most cases, entrepreneurs are so secretive. They don't want you anywhere near their company. They don't want anybody in the company to know that they're selling. You know, this is a... Because it often doesn't go through and why spook the horses? What I'll do is is I'll, I'll look at website. I'll talk to them. Often when you're negotiating a deal, somewhere in there, their true colors are going to show. And so maybe it's during, you know, conversations about ad backs and finances and purchase price. If they've got a bad personality, they're hiding behind a mask, you know, while they're trying to, you know, everything's happy until you get married and then you find out who you're really married to. But when you're dating, everything is wonderful. And so I'm trying to look behind the mask and pick out from their personality you know, call it the traits. And again, one of my criteria and filter would always be, I'm looking for a company that has good reputation in its marketplace. I'm not looking for a fixer-upper. Life's too short for fixer-uppers. I want companies that have great positioning, strong cultures, thought of highly by their competitors and by the customers. So if I buy a company in a region, it's a new region, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ask them, who do you respect? Who do you think is a great competitor that's worthy of competing, you know, it's like, I wanna buy good companies. And so I can honestly say that most of the times I can detect a toxic culture or a, a level of arrogance. Think about these entrepreneurs. So I buy a company or I, I buy 23 companies and put them together. I just gave 23 people all wheelbarrows full of gold. They're now all rich. They don't have to work anymore, but I want them to work. And they've never had a boss before. And now I got to put a saddle on their back and I got to teach them how to how to be in my corral and, and work together as a team. And so these are some monumental tasks when you're buying 20 or 30 companies. One bad apple in the middle of that corral can really derail uh, a buy and build effort. So I spend a lot of time up front investigating through my use of creating the filters of what the perfect acquisition is going to look like. I'm investigating these problems that will cause me headaches on the post-acquisition side, and I'm vetting them on a pre-acquisition, pre-LOI stage, and I'm eliminating those that I think are going to be high risk. Even still, there are some people who give good interview, and then you hire them and they stink. There are some entrepreneurs who are just good at putting up that mask, and then you discover down the road that there were other issues or problems, or you know they've checked out on you post-close. So you know, bad deals can happen, but I really try to limit the number. And I focus on only buying good companies with good entrepreneurs that fit my mold. Well, the other thing I have is a rule of thumb, and maybe your numbers are much better, but I, normally it feels to me about a third of the entrepreneurs who sell, now, not just the PE, but, you know, either directly or to strategic, where there's an earnout in place, get to the end 
because they're, you know, they started a company for a reason because they were crappy employees and now they're an employee again. Are your numbers better than that? You know, there's 23. Did, did most of those guys get to the three-year mark or? So, so here's your statistics. I'm not even there anymore. I'm not even the CEO anymore. And of the 23 companies I bought, 20 of the 23 entrepreneurs are still there, still working after getting multiple paydays. And, and so, yeah, again, it's like my superpower is aspiration and, and, and being able to articulate a vision and then being able to also articulate that vision to these entrepreneurs about, hey, listen, you're successful. God bless you. Here's a bunch of money but there's more work to be done. And here's the vision. Have you ever thought about being a part of a billion dollar company and getting three or four paydays along the way and really making a mark on our industry and, and doing something special? And so I find those people who aspire to do something special. They've reached some level of success in their lives and in their career, you know, bless them. You know, they're, they're, they're rare they're successful and they just got 20, 30, $40 million for their business, but let's build something extra special and we can make multiple paydays along the way. Have you ever thought about, I don't know, being a billionaire or doing a billion dollar roll up and dominating an industry? Wouldn't that be cool to tell your friends, you know, when you're 80 and using your walker and your drool bucket, I would say, you know, a 20 out of 23 still there and I'm not. So, Yes, you can do this. You can be successful. But I'll tell you that one of my roll-ups that I did, I bought 34 companies and only one entrepreneur did I want to stay and the rest left. And I'll tell you what makes the difference. Everything in life and investment is about risk. So if I'm in an industry and I'm buying companies and putting them together, the first question I have to ask myself is what's the risk of me losing the revenue that I just bought and paid a multiple for, for its earnings. And when I was building a commercial laundry company, these were long contracts. They were secured contracts. They couldn't be broken. They were five to 10 years in length. I didn't need the entrepreneurs because the revenue was secure. So I would use a consulting agreement and I would play to their own vanity. If I'm not there, I don't wanna be a rollover investor. Great, take all your money, give me a one-year consulting agreement. And because I'm not worried about losing the revenue or the earnings, I, in that particular buy and build, I didn't want the entrepreneurs to stay because they added an element of risk and complexity and I didn't need it to secure the revenue. But in the HVAC industry, although I had contracted revenue that might be three, three to five years in length, the reality in an industrial or commercial services contract, they can be canceled by either party with 30 days notice. I need, because of revenue concentration on a, on a commercial service business, I need the relationships that that founder had in place with people. I don't want them to ride off into the sunset. So I make them be rollover investors and I force them to stay because I'm putting handcuffs on them and they have a significant upside potential. And since I've been doing this for decades, I can give them case studies and they can talk to people that I've worked with who've done this. And and so quickly what I find is as I buy company one, two, three, well, now I've got other people singing from the choir, you know, my hymnal about second bites of the apple and companies four, five, six, seven. And eventually it just becomes easy to convince people that there is a bright future in staying and being a part of this adventure. So for me, it all starts with risk. If there's no risk to losing what I bought, 
don't need the entrepreneurs. If there is risk, I need to keep them. I'll give you a great example. The first empire I built was a medical services company that fixed equipment at hospitals. The largest customer was about 25% of the earnings. And shortly after I had left, the company that was sold again, it lost its largest customer. And so 25% of the earnings that someone just paid 13 times for just disappeared, not because of poor service, but because of a consolidation where one hospital chain bought another and their service provider was different. So they, they canceled the contract, you know, could not have prevented that with entrepreneurs staying. But the point is, is it's all about risk. And so how much I pay is dependent upon risk. Whether or not entrepreneurs stay is dependent on my risk because I'm paying a lot of money to buy companies. I don't want to lose all the business I'm buying. And so that's what dictates whether people stay or go. Fab. Adam, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? So I've thought about this and I've been asked this question a number of times. So I spent 21 years as a CEO. And in order to make an incredible amount of money and generate wealth for myself, I had to make billions for institutional shareholders. What I wish I would have done differently is leave sooner. Rather than spending 21 years as a CEO, I should have spent about 10 years and then left and done this on my own for myself, for my own benefit, rather than for institutional shareholders. You know, I have to make them billions to make me millions, and I could have just been making billions for myself. But I couldn't have done it from the beginning. I needed to learn the skills that I had. But it's interesting because when I rotated out of the CEO seat, I thought my biggest paydays are probably behind me. You know, And when I sell a company for the sizes that I was selling them for, I'm getting big paydays. And, and I'm thinking my biggest payday is probably behind me, but I still have game left and I want to help multiple companies. And, and there's, there's a, an altruistic bent to this now. It's like, I want to help people succeed and I want to teach them what I've learned. But two years later, I'm now looking, I make more today than I made as a CEO because I'm not a CEO that has to say no to everything outside my company. Opportunities are coming at me left and right. You know, I, I'm involved in stuff that will give me nine-figure paydays. And I, I'm thinking to myself, I should have left the CEO seat sooner. That's my, my, if I could have done it over, someone else needed to write my books, which teach this generation's entrepreneurs how to do this and be successful and get my 35 years of business experience, you know, for $3.99 on Kindle. And four hours later, it's like, you know, it's like my, my books are cliff notes on how to do this because I'm not, I don't want to sit in a meeting all day. It's like, and so I teach you how to do this and, and like five hours per book tops. You know, this one, this is the road to a billion. This is the roadmap of how you go from zero to a billion dollars by a guy who's done it multiple times. And again, for Amazon on opening week, it's like 99 cents, you know, when that thing comes out. So for a buck and five hours, I'll teach you what I learned in 35 years. But if I could have done it earlier, I would have actually built a much larger empire than I, than I did. And I'd be a billionaire myself today. I'm not. But I believe in the next 10 years, I'll make more money in the next 10 years than I did in my previous 30 combined. So I'd say I've learned you know, how to do this. Now I'm doing it for myself. Fabulous. Well, other than reading all of your fabulous books, uh, which is why I got you on, because I read them and I thought they were fabulous. What else should people pick up and read? 
I'm going to go old school on you because I know everybody's got the latest book, you know, um, but I, I'm going to tell you that if you want to be successful in life as an entrepreneur, you need to learn what being successful is all about. And so I'll go 20 years back and say, why don't you read, start with the millionaire next door? Why don't you read what the profile of successful people really looks like? Because they're not the people who are out there driving around in their Ferraris and Bentleys, although I have to admit I've got a, both of them out in my stable outside. But you know, the reality is it's like learn about wealth and what wealth really looks like. So Millionaire Next Door, uh, their follow-up to that was The Millionaire Mind. If I'm running a business, I like to think of the book, you know, Finding Blue Ocean. And it's all about when you are really hurting due to competition. It's how to reinvent yourself through making strategic pivots. And then I'll, I'll go with Good to Great by Jim Collins. You know, he calls it the flywheel effect. I call it bending the growth curve. But both are important. You know, if you think about, you know, if I have a million dollar business, so first of all, in the US, some statistics, 33 million small companies in the United States alone, only 7% have a million dollars in revenue. So it's rare to get to a million dollars in revenue. But if I had a million dollar business and I'm growing at 10%, in 7.2 years, it's 2 million. And in 7.2 years, it's 4 million. And in 7.2 years, you know, it's 8 million. It's gonna take me like, you know, 100,000 years to build a big company. We need to grow at 30 plus percent and hold it forever. Then a company doubles in size in 2.8 years. It triples in uh, a 3.4, whatever the hell the math is. And then it, it quadruples in just over five years, the typical PE hold period. And if I can do that, that same million dollars over a 20 year period becomes a $190 million company. However, if I'm growing at 10%, you know, a million becomes like, you know, 6 million. It's like, so... Growing fast matters. And so Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, you know, The Flywheel Effect, I think that's another classic that uh, I would recommend to people. I call it a classic now. I guess that makes me old. <laughs> but I think it's interesting. You know, I speak to people and you, some people have read Good to Great, but not everybody. And then you get into, you know, well, what's your flywheel? And the flywheel means that they have to have a solid understanding of their what drives their business. Correct. And so often people don't have a solid understanding of what drives their business. They're spending all their days putting out fires and they're not taking a step back. You know, you said PE, you know, PE firms are buying companies all the time without a plan, right? People are running businesses without a plan. It never ceases to amaze me. You know, how many entrepreneurs have told me, if I only get bigger, I'll figure out how to make money. And I'm like, no, the key to building a billion dollar business is to build a successful 100,000 to a million dollar business. It's all about unit level economics. If I get it working right small, scaling is inevitable that it will work because it works small, I can make it work even better big. But when it doesn't work small, it never is gonna work big. And people waste the one thing in life that we cannot buy, and that's time. There's a time element to success. Our careers have a finite amount of time available. And if we're spinning our wheels and we don't have a plan and we don't have a destination, we don't know where we're going or what we're trying to achieve, how the hell are we supposed to get there? And so people spend their entire lives just kind of wandering aimlessly. They have no destination in mind. So when I go back to the beginning of this podcast and I talk about those four things that shape my life, military gave me discipline, teamwork, leadership. But it was engineering that made me a strategic planner. And it was a pilot that made me focus on the destination. 
And if I'm starting a business, I need a destination in mind. It's not about me building something and 30 years later selling it to private equity. When I start a business today, I have an exit in mind. I'm trying to get to 4 million of EBITDA so I can sell it for 32 million. Or I'm trying to get to 10 million of EBITDA so I can sell it for 120 million. You know, I've got a destination in mind and it's based upon where are the logical exit points where different size PE firms are buying in. Where am I getting multiple expansion because I've hit a new swim lane, I call them, you know, a, a new level where now PE firms of a larger size are buying and they're taking them up to the top of that swim lane. And then the next size up PE firm is, is taking it from there. There's five different levels to the pyramid between zero and public company if I am maximizing the potential of a PE partner. And so understanding where those exit points are gives me now a destination to shoot for. If I want to do it quick, I could buy, I'll give you an example. I could buy four companies with a million dollars of EBITDA each, and I could pay five times for each. That's 20 million. And I could immediately put them together, get them working as a cohesive unit, demonstrate organic growth, bend the fly, you know, get the flywheel effect going. And instantaneously, I could sell those for probably around eight times here in the U.S., and a service business with recurrent revenue and little CapEx, and I'm gonna get 32 million. Well, you know, I'm gonna get 32 million on something that costs me 20, that's 12 million of profit. If I take and I buy 10 $1 million companies, and I get to 10 million EBITDA, I'm gonna sell it for 120, 12 times, and it's gonna cost me, you know, if I'm paying five times for one times 10, I'm gonna pay 50 million for something I sell for 120 million, you know, and now I'm making 70 million. And so it's like, have your exit in mind. And then I create a mathematical formula based on my unit level economics. What does the first million dollars in revenue look like? What does the $10 million in revenue look like? What is my capital expenditure plan to get to a million? What's my capital expenditure plan to get to 10 million? What are the make or break issues that are going to determine my success or failure? And then finally, you know, what is that exit strategy going to look like? And, you know, it's like I put all of this together before I start. Most people start a business with a concept, but they don't know where they're going. So they don't know what success looks like. They don't know when they've arrived and they waste 10, 20 years and they look up and they're like, damn, you know, I, I, you know, I thought I'd be worth a billion dollars by now. And, you know, my business has got 1.5 million in revenue. You know, what did I do wrong? Well, you were successful. You earned a living. Good for you. Um, but you didn't have a destination and you weren't keeping score. What's your destination now? Are you planning to retire or are you planning to go out with your boots on? Uh, I'm going out with my boots on for sure. So my personal destination is to be one of the 2,668 billionaires on the planet to join that club. That's my next destination. I have multiple companies in flight right now. One that's interesting is I, I'm building a trade school where I'm looking for a, a $234 million exit in the next three years. Shortage of tradespeople all across the world, working on that with a, a, a handful of other entrepreneurs um, and excited about it. You know, I want to solve a problem for the world, which is we don't have enough plumbers, electricians. So at any rate, it, it's like have a destination in mind, then I can keep score and I know if I'm winning or losing. And I'm not going to go, I'm not going to, don't blow this up or anything, but it's like, you know, I'm in my home office. I've got a whiteboard over there that has my goals and objectives for the year. And I have exceeded my entire year's goals and I did it six months into the year. It's like, if you don't know where you're going, you can't get there. So have a destination in mind, reverse engineer it. And then at the start, your chances of success are so much higher. Adam, that's what a fantastic way to finish.
start with the end in mind. Thank you very much for coming on and giving us your time and wisdom today. It was good to be here. And uh, thank you to all your listeners out there for tuning in. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week. Thank you.